invite you to turn in your copy of Scripture to our text this morning, which is Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verses 5 through 6. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5 through 6, as we continue in our study through the book of Hebrews. There we read, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, by this time, we are familiar with the book of Hebrews and the intention of the writer as he wrote, carried along by the Holy Spirit. We know that he wrote in order to encourage the Hebrew Christians to persevere in their faith in Christ. Most of the audience that the writer was encouraging and writing to was made up of former Jews, They had been born into Judaism, raised into the Jewish faith, but they had trusted in Christ. They heard the gospel, they believed in Christ, and that brought with it persecution, that brought with it rejection from their fellow Jews, and they were tempted to turn away from their newfound faith. And the writer of Hebrews writes to encourage them, and to exhort them to persevere in their faith. We know, don't we, loved ones, that faith is not just a one-time decision, but faith is a long obedience in the same direction. That saving faith, true faith, is demonstrated in a lifetime of perseverance. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, that the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so in this chapter, specifically in Hebrews chapter 11, the writer lists believers from the Old Covenant who, by the grace of God, persevered in their faith. They persevered for a lifetime. And they did so despite the fact that they didn't see the fulfillment of God's promises in their own day. They were still looking forward to the day of fulfillment. And so uh, this morning, we will consider the second person in this long line of faithful men and women. This morning, we will consider uh, Enoch, our brother in Christ. We first see in our text, both from Hebrews chapter 11 and more specifically from Genesis chapter 5, that Enoch was born into a godly family. Enoch was born into a godly family. And as we consider this point, I do invite you to turn in your copy of Scripture to Genesis. And we will begin with chapter 4, reviewing a bit from last week. You know, in Genesis chapter 4 describes the first murder, the murder where Cain killed his brother Abel. And what we saw last Sunday was that there was no repentance 
or remorse in Cain. And the reason for that was because he was ungodly. Right? He didn't have a saving faith. But notice with me in Genesis chapter 4 that after Cain killed his brother, we read that Cain started his own family, and the names of Cain's descendants are listed there in Genesis chapter 4, verses 17 through 18. And what we see in this lineage, in Cain's lineage, is that it is marked by sin and by opposition to God. We see this most clearly in the ungodly Lamech, who we read in Genesis chapter 4, verses 23 through 24, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So here is Lamech. He's a descendant of Cain. And how is he described? He is described as being thoroughly depraved. Every time I read this passage and what Lamech says, I imagine that stereotypical character in every old Western movie. He's that loud, obnoxious, depraved bad guy in the saloon uh, that annoys everyone around him and that usually ends up dead by the end of the movie. And so here is violent Lamech. He's a descendant of the violent Cain. And what is he like? How is he described? See that he has two wives. It's clearly showing that he had a disregard for God's design for marriage and creation. God's design that marriage is to be between one man and one woman for life. Lamech throws this off and he has two wives. And not only that, but we see that he boasts in his vengefulness. He boasts that a man wounded him, and what was Lamech's response? Not to seek justice, not to seek punishment for the man that was proportional to the crime. No, we read that Lamech boasts in the fact that he killed this man. So who is Lamech like? He is like Cain from whom he descends. But we see that there is a word of hope in Genesis chapter 4 because in verse 25, we are introduced to Seth. Seth, who was Adam and Eve's third son. And we read that his family line is righteous. Look at Genesis chapter 4, verses 25 through 26. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So loved ones, we see that in Seth's line, Beginning in Genesis chapter 5, 
There is a godly family that is being formed by God. A family line that we read in Luke chapter 3 will lead to the birth of the Lord Jesus, the birth of the Messiah, the promised one. And so when we consider Genesis 5 and the genealogy or the family tree that is outlined for us, what we see is that Enoch was born within this godly line of Seth, not from the ungodly line of Cain, from the godly line of Seth. Look at the list. Look at the genealogy there in Genesis chapter 5. See, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalalel, Jared, and then Enoch. And we read in verse 24 about Enoch. And listen to how different Enoch sounds from the ungodly Lamech, the vengeful murderer the polygamist. Listen to how Enoch is described, Enoch who was born within that godly line. Verse 24, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. In his commentary on Genesis 5, the late James Montgomery Boyce, who was a well-known Reformed and Presbyterian pastor, He points out the significance of these two lineages, that of Cain and that of Seth, and the fact that the Holy Spirit placed these two lineages, one after another in Genesis chapter 4 and 5, that the reason for this is to show us the pattern that God generally works in and through families to call people to himself, in and through families to build up the church. This is a pattern that is established here. It's a pattern we know that continues throughout Scripture and into our day as well. That God generally works in and through families to call people to himself. And, you know, at this point, we have to be careful uh, not to presume too much because Cain, who was the father of the godless line, was also a son of Adam and Eve, just like Seth was. And so this this warns us that we cannot presume on God in this matter as if it were impossible for our children to stray, even though they are our children and have been taught correctly. But still, when we look at Genesis 5, we see that the godly there are all from one family. This is significant because what we see is that presumably Adam taught spiritual truths to his third son, Seth. Seth then taught Enosh. Enosh taught Canaan and so on from generation to generation up to Enoch, who is listed among those faithful in Hebrews chapter 11. So what we see in the Bible is that, see this pattern. God generally works in and through families to call people to himself. Now, this begins to be revealed here in the time before the flood, and it becomes even more clear. It becomes abundantly clear after the flood with God's covenant with Noah and with Abraham. It becomes very clear in God's covenant with Noah because Noah, we know, was righteous. He walked with God and his whole family, 
not just Noah, was therefore spared from judgment. God works in and through families to call people to himself. We see this even more clearly with Abraham, that the covenant that God made with Abraham was made with Abraham and with his seed and with his descendants. So, loved ones, this is why the sign of the covenant, the sign of the covenant with, in the uh, Old Testament was circumcision. That's why the sign was applied to the children of believers. Right? And we know that this practice continues on into the new covenant, that the sign changes from circumcision to baptism, but the idea remains the same. It is the covenant sign that is to be applied to the children of believers. And that's why when children are baptized in our church, the two texts from the Bible that I often cite are from Genesis chapter 17 and from Acts chapter 2. In Genesis 17, when God established his covenant with Abraham, again, it was a covenant with Abraham and with his seed and with his family. We read in Genesis 17, verse 7, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. See, this was, loved ones, to be the practice of God's people, of Israel, was to apply the covenant sign to their children to their offspring. And loved ones, notice that it wasn't just to apply the sign and then leave it at that. But it was to give them the sign of the covenant and then to bring them up day by day in the ways of the Lord. That Israel was to teach their children about the Lord, to teach their children about spiritual truths, to impress upon them the importance of, of walking with God. This is so clearly expressed in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 7, where we read the commandment to Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit on the, in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. There was to be this pattern within Israel, granting them the sign, giving the sign, and also then bring them up in the ways of the Lord. And this is carried into the new covenant as well. You know that when Peter stood up at Pentecost, and he preached. He declared in Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 39. Now we read, Peter said, Brothers, what shall, oh, I'm sorry, the crowd asked Peter, What shall we do? Right? And they asked the apostles in response to the sign that had descended upon them on Pentecost. Peter stood up in verse 38 and said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
see that pattern of applying the sign and then bringing the children up in the ways of the Lord in that family context, in the context of the home. The parents are godly, and they teach uh, spiritual truths to their children. This is why when parents in our church bring their children to be baptized, one of the questions that I ask is from our book of church order. It's one of the required questions that the parents are to answer in the affirmative. The question is, do you now unreservedly commit in covenant relationship your child to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before him a godly example, that you will pray with and for him, that you will teach him the doctrines of our holy faith, and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so, you children that are here this morning, you have been brought here by your parents. Why? Because they love God, and they're living in obedience to God. And your parents want good things for you. They want you to enjoy your studies. They want you to do well in school, to have good relationships with others. They want you to excel in life. These are all good things. But children, your parents' greatest desire is for you to know and to love the Lord. This is what we see with Enoch. He was from a godly line, a godly family. That was God's means of teaching Enoch and of drawing Enoch to himself. That was God's grace in Enoch's life. And children who are here this morning, that is God's grace to you in your life, placing you in a godly home, parents that love you and that bring you to worship here in the house of God. We see, secondly, that Enoch was part of the faithful remnant of God's people on earth. Enoch was part of the faithful remnant of God's people on earth. That word remnant, uh, we see it appear throughout Scripture. It's a word that means a small group of people who remain faithful to God. Uh, This is, again, a theme throughout the Bible, that no matter how bad uh, things seem to get in the world, God has always preserved a people for himself. God always preserves a people for himself. And this is one of the things that John Calvin points out about this passage in his commentary in Genesis. Calvin points out that one of the things Seth's godly lineage, his godly genealogy is meant to teach us is that there is always a number of God's people present in the world, though that number may be small, though that number may seem insignificant, God always preserves a people for himself who love him and who worship him. And what we read about Enoch is that Enoch was part of that small number of people who remained faithful to God in the midst of a wicked and a perverse 
generation. How bad was that generation? How bad was, were the days that uh, Enoch lived in? How outnumbered were the, were the people of God in his day and age? Well, when we look at Genesis 6, and there we see the beginnings of the story of Noah, we read about how bad it had gotten. We read in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, these words, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's how bad it had gotten. And it was out of this great multitude of wicked people that we read in the story of Noah, the Lord saved only eight people. He saved a remnant, Noah and his family. Now, in describing this idea of remnant, that is again found throughout Scripture, throughout redemptive history, uh, the Belgic Confession, it was a confession written in 1561, the Belgic Confession describes the church, the true church in this way, the remnant of God. It says, Christ's church has existed from the beginning of the world and will last until the end, as appears from the fact that Christ is the eternal king who cannot be without subjects. And his holy church is preserved by God against the rage of the whole world even though for a time it may seem very small to human eyes, as though it were snuffed out. For example, continues the Belgic Confession, for example, during the very dangerous time of Ahab, the Lord preserved for himself 7,000 who did not bend the knees to Baal. Now, the example the Belgic Confession here gives us from the days of Elijah, those days that we know so well from Elijah's story. He was a man of God who was frustrated by the sinfulness of Israel. And though God used Elijah to show his power, uh, we read that Elijah was on the run because Ahab, the king, ordered that he be arrested and put to death. We read that Elijah ran for his life, and he was despairing of hope, wanting to die. And it was in that moment of despair that the Lord spoke to Elijah. We read what the Lord said to him in 1 Kings chapter 19. What are you doing here, Elijah? As God spoke to him in the cave, Elijah said, I have been very zealous for the Lord. The God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets. And with the sword, uh, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. What was Elijah's conclusion about the matter? I'm the only faithful one left in all of Israel. The Lord's reply to Elijah, we read in verse 18 of 1 Kings 19, God says, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. What was the Lord's reply to Elijah? Elijah, you're not the only one. I have a remnant. I have a people. I have preserved my church. Though it may seem small, 
Though it may seem at this moment that it has been snuffed out by the evil one, I have preserved a people for myself. And loved ones, it was true in the days of Enoch. It was true in the days of Elijah. And it remains true today. So when we think of Enoch, you know, what was it? What was it that set Enoch apart from the wicked and perverse generation around him? What was it that made him a part of that faithful remnant of God? We read in Genesis chapter 5, twice, verses 22 and 24, that Enoch walked with God. Enoch walked with God. And then in Hebrews 11, we read that he was commended as having pleased God. What does it mean to walk with God? Now, this phrase means more than just obedience, more than just following the rules, following the commandments. This phrase points to fellowship and communion together. It describes a close, intimate relationship. You know, if you see two people walking together in the park, you don't think to yourself, uh, wow, uh, one of them must be a slave and the other one is uh, the master that's commanding the other person to do something. Uh, or you don't look at those two people walking together and say, those two people must hate each other. No, when you see two people walking together, you see that they're in agreement, that they are of one mind. They desire the same things as they seem to be going in the same direction. The prophet Amos asked, can two walk together unless they are in agreement? The answer is, of course not. So when Enoch is described as one who walked with God, it means that his heart, his mind, his desires were in tune with God's. And when we walk with God's, it means when we walk with God, it means that we too are in agreement with the Lord. He is the one who sets the pace. He sets the destination. And we conform to the Lord's ways as he grants us the grace to do so. And this is what we see with Enoch. He walked with God, so he loved God. And he had fellowship with God. See, Enoch was part of that small remnant in his day who stood with God and who did not stand with the ungodly of the world. Now, this doesn't mean that Enoch was sinless. Enoch, too, was saved by grace and by grace alone. But we do know that his life reflected the saving grace that God had granted him. And this is most evident in the way that Enoch lived in opposition to the ungodliness of his day. We read in Jude, verses 14 through 15, which was our second reading this morning. Listen to how often the word ungodly is used in these two verses. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones, execute judgment on all, to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Enoch is clearly opposed to the ungodliness of his age as he stands with God and walks 
with God, lives in fellowship and communion with God. You know, this was important for the first century Hebrew Christians to understand this idea of God's faithfulness in preserving a people for himself. Remember, the Hebrews were facing opposition from their fellow Jews. They would soon be facing fiery opposition from the Roman Empire. They were dealing with false teachers in their midst. And so in the face of so much opposition, you know, it's easy to feel outnumbered. It's easy to feel weak. And their temptation was, therefore, to throw off their confidence in the Lord and Jesus Christ. They were fearful like Elijah was fearful. And perhaps like you are this morning. So James Boyce writes in response to this, Do you find yourself to be a part of the faithful minority in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace? Do not be discouraged. It has always been this way. God doesn't deal so much in quantity as he does in quality. That although the faithful are often few in number in every generation, praise God that they are also many at times. There are nevertheless always those few, and they are meant to encourage one another. Thirdly, we see in Enoch's life that God spared Enoch from death to show his church the truth of eternal life. Because as we look again at the genealogy in Genesis chapter 5, we see there that there's this recurring pattern, this recurring pattern that I'm sure that you noticed in our first reading from Genesis 5. And it's that pattern of death. The people in this lineage, we read, lived long lives, but their lives ended in the same way. How? In death. Genesis 5, beginning of verse 5, thus all the days of Adam that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Seth lived, we read in verse 6, and he died. Enosh lived, and he died. Right? And this pattern continues generation after generation. Life, then death. Why is that pattern present? We because we know that the curse of sin is death. God promised Adam, if you sin by eating from the forbidden tree, eating that fruit, in that day that you do that, God says, you shall surely die. And after Adam and Eve sinned, we read that the curse was pronounced by God over all of creation in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, God says to Adam and Eve, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so in Genesis 5, the reality of the curse of sin upon creation and upon humanity is apparent. It becomes very Obvious that death seems to be reigning. 
this pattern of life that ends in death. It's abundantly apparent to all that the wages of sin, the curse of sin, is death. But we see, loved ones, that there is a clear sign of hope. Where is that clear sign? It's in Enoch's deliverance from death. Because we see that in Genesis 5, the pattern is broken by God's grace. The pattern is broken by Enoch. Verse 21, Enoch lived, and you expect, and Enoch died. But that's not what we read. Enoch lived, and then verse 24, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. See, loved ones, the idea is that Enoch escaped physical death by being taken by God into glory. So why did God spare Enoch and not everyone else? We might conclude that, oh, it's because Enoch was sinless, and that's why God spared him from the curse of sin. Yet we know, loved ones, uh, the curse of death. Yet we know, loved ones, that that is not the case from the rest of Scripture, for all are born into sin. Why then did God spare Enoch? God, we see, spared Enoch and took him away in the very sight of men because John Calvin says he wished to communicate that a better life was laid up for God's people elsewhere. That the walk of faith with God that begins in this life doesn't end in this life, but it continues into eternity. It's a walk that starts in this life and that doesn't end, but progresses and continues for an eternity. And it is an eternity, loved ones, that is secured by the promise that God gave to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3.15. It's the promise that God would send one who would come to conquer sin, to conquer death, to conquer hell, and to ultimately save his people from judgment and from wrath. And Enoch, being born in that godly line, being taught, being raised up in the ways of the Lord, Enoch lived looking forward to that promised one. He lived in those days of promise. You and I, we live in the days of a fulfillment. We know from the New Testament how Christ came, how he suffered death, and how he removed the sting of death for his people. He removed it for you and for me. So, you know, we live this life in the valley of the shadow of death, but we live by faith. We live by faith knowing that death is not the end for us. For Christ has conquered death. He has conquered the grave, and he reigns victorious. Death is not the final word. And so, loved ones, we live by faith. We live by faith, taking comfort in the words of the Lord Jesus, the words that he spoke as he stood by Lazarus' tomb in John chapter 11 where he said that I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. 
and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Amen. Let us pray. Father, you have declared that while the grass withers and the flowers fall, your word endures forever. So we ask you now to write your word on our hearts. Grant that the word we have heard preached this day may not be snatched up by the evil one, nor fall on hard, unrepentant hearts, nor be choked by the cares and worries of this life. But soften our hearts, we pray, that we may truly profit from the word. And growing in grace, grant us, we pray, to bear fruit for your kingdom, 30, 60, 90, even 100-fold. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.